uh, this morning continuing a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. We've called this series One because that really sums up what Paul is telling us in the book of Ephesians, is that in Christ, in the gospel, God is uniting all things, all broken things are coming back together again under the kingship of Jesus. That he's taking a fractured world and, and bringing it back together in Christ. And that a part of doing that is bringing together fractured humanity, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, black, white, all people together in one new human family in the church. We are in Ephesians 4 this morning. We're at a, we said we're at a pivot point in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul's been laying out this incredible truth about what God has done and is doing in the world. And now in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to spell out in very practical terms what that means for us as we live our life in the church and in the workplace and our marriages and our families. And so, let's give our attention to God's Word. If you are willing and able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and to all the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is it, it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. In verse 1, Paul starts with, therefore, therefore, you know, the, it's a good rule of thumb when you're reading the Bible and you come to this word, especially in Paul, therefore, that we ask ourselves, what's that therefore, therefore, what, what's he pointing us to before it? What's the logic that's gotten us to this place uh, where he says, therefore, in the verses just before it, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. 
The therefore points us to this incredible good news about all that Jesus is doing and has done for us in the church. And so what Paul builds to now is basically answering the question, what does it mean for us to be the church in light of everything that Jesus has done? What does it mean for us not just to go to church, not just to do church and go through the motions of church, but what does it mean to be the church, to be God's people in our place, in our time? What does it mean to do that? And he tells us, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To walk, to live in a way that's congruent, in a way that makes sense out of this story of what God's doing and joining all things together in Christ. In 1954, a young pastor named Martin Luther King Jr., moved to Montgomery, Alabama uh, to take over the pastorate of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, when, uh, when Martin got to, got to Montgomery, he was a young man. He was, he'd finished seminary. He had completed his doctorate at Boston University. He was actually still writing his thesis. And he takes this job at about a 300-member church uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, we actually know, uh, due to some transcripts, we know about Martin's ambition when he arrived at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He released a, a position paper when he started his pastorate there about what his goals were, about what the vision for the church would be. And like a lot of young pastors, his vision was to restore Dexter Avenue Baptist Church to greatness. It was about increased budgets, increased attendance, to be able to grow the church enough that he could afford a full-time secretary, uh, so that maybe one day he could have an assistant pastor, uh, so that he could uh, increase giving enough that they would be able to increase his, uh, his salary. All of this is right out there. It's his strategic plan in 1954. But then early on uh, in his pastorate there, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat uh, on a Montgomery City bus, and the Montgomery bus boycott began. And a group of other local pastors... Uh, came to, uh, to Martin, already uh, recognized for his eloquence and his giftedness as a preacher. And they said, uh, Brother King, we need you to lead for us. We'd like you to be the president of the Montgom Montgomery Improvement Association, the, the body that would be leading this boycott, seeking to end segregation in the Montgomery uh, city bus lines. And at first, Dr. King was reticent. He refused it several times. Uh, before he took up uh, the willingness to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. Uh, finally, Ralph Abernathy and others were able to convince him uh, to take the lead in this. His initial set of demands to the city of Montgomery were so small that the NAACP refused to endorse it. And most white citizens of Montgomery said, yeah, we can do that. It was, it was very, very meager, simply to have black bus drivers in black neighborhoods, uh, to start sitting whites from the front of the bus, blacks from the back without reserve seats. It was very, it was, he was taking a compromise position on most of these things. We see him very reticent to take the pulpit and lead crowds in talking about it. We see a guy who's, who's hesitant to come into this increasingly clear calling. Well, as I said, eventually he takes the lead in this. He's convinced by, uh, by Abernathy that the uh, boycott will last for a day, a week tops. He said, in a week, surely, the city's going to give in to our demands. 
But if you know the story, it drags on for months, a 384-day bus boycott uh, before it's all said and done. Several months uh, into the event, into the boycott, uh, Dr. King received a threatening phone call. Uh, He says that he received 30 to 40 of them a day at this point in the boycott. A man was threatening his home, his health, his family, and he was was convinced that he might need to give up, that maybe it wasn't worth uh, what he was being asked to do. It wasn't worth Coretta's health and their, their young daughter. So he says he brews himself a pot of coffee and he sits down at his kitchen table and he begins to pray. What should I do? Should I, should I turn back? Should I give up? Should I let somebody else do it? Here's what he says happens. He says, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me. No, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. Never alone. He promised never to leave me. No, never alone. What he was dragged into reluctantly begins to take on the force of a calling in Martin's life, something he's convinced That is, this is what it means for me to be a pastor in this city. What it means for me to lead a church in this time is to be a part of this. When he's giving the speech that marks the end of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, is they're celebrating that. He says this, he says, But we have to remember as we boycott, that we boycott not as an end in itself. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. The end is the creation of the beloved community. What he was after uh, wasn't just the absence of segregation, but was actually very similar to Paul's vision of the church, a beloved community. You see over and over in the transcripts of his speeches at Montgomery that, that his vision, and part of what he saw as the problem there, wasn't just social. It was ecclesial. It had to do with the church. These were baptized Christians denying other baptized Christians their humanity, their dignity. That what it means to be the church, to be what he calls here the beloved community, is to be a community that is at at one, that's experiencing the unity that Paul calls us to here. Dr. King is simply doing what every Christian church at every time and place has to do, has to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us in our time and place in light of the sins around us, in light of the community that we dwell in, in light of our gifts and responsibilities, what does it mean for us to be the church? He's doing the same thing that Roman Christians did in the first century where they said for us to be the church is going to require that we take in these babies that are being left on Roman trash heaps and raise them because we can't claim to be the church in such a world and let that go. It's the same thing in the 19th century that George Mueller did when he started orphanages in England for abandoned children. It's the same thing that William Carey did in the Church of England when they recognized that they were living uh, to exploit the Indian population and populations around the world without bringing them the gospel and started the modern missions movement. He's doing what every Christian has to do, which is to look around them at the world at their given realities and say, what does it mean for us here and now to be the church. You know, Paul uh, is never as specific as we'd like him to be. The biblical writers rarely give us paint-by-numbers instructions on what it means to be the church. Right? He doesn't tell us, first do this, then do this, then do this. I mean, there's certain things right, that Jesus tells us to do until the end of the age. Lord's Supper, baptism, 
Great Commission, taking out the gospel, right? He gives us, he gives us trajectories. He gives us some, some knowledge of what we need to be faithful to. But then he gives us a lot of, of freedom to live and to contextualize the gospel where we are. Um, the theologian Marva Dawn has this great analogy. It's a, it's a sermon illustration so good, I wish I'd made it up. She says that the way that Paul and the way that the New Testament writers give us for being the church, she says you have to imagine that it's like, imagine if we discovered a play of Shakespeare that had been abandoned for years, that we didn't know existed, and we had the first four acts of the, or we had the first three acts of the play, and we had the fifth act of the play, but we didn't have the fourth act. So we knew how it began, we knew how the plot built, but then the fourth act, we don't know what happens. And then we know how it ends in the fifth act. And she says what the scriptures give us and what the scriptures call us to is faithful improvisation, which I I love that phrase. It's to live out the fourth act, knowing what comes before it in anticipation of what's ahead of it in a way that makes sense. So she said, imagine if you took this five-act play and you didn't have the fourth act, so what would you do? Maybe you'd go out and get some of the world's leading Shakespeare scholars. Maybe you get a group of experienced Shakespearean actors, and you tell them, you let them study it. They know Shakespeare. They know the the way he thought. they They know the way that he built tension, the way that he resolved plots. And you told them to go and improvise the fourth act. And in her analogy, the church is like those actors. We know the first three acts, God's creation, the fall of the world, God's redeeming the world in Israel and in Jesus. And we know how the story ends, don't we? The return of Jesus and glorious consummation, healing all things. And then we live our lives in the middle of that, in the middle of those things, in keeping with what came before, in anticipation of what's ahead. And we have guardrails, as we've said. And I think that's what Paul's showing us here, is here's some of the, here's some of the stage direction. Here's some of, of, of the things to guard you and keep you as you live out the church's vocation. You know, I actually think that what he does here is in keeping with what's become uh, some of the standard Christian uh, confession about the church. If you, ever, if you remember the Nicene Creed, when we confess our faith together with Christians around the world in the Nicene Creed, we say we believe in, in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Isn't it amazing that that's an article of faith for the Christian? Just on the same level as believing in the, the virgin birth, Believing in the resurrection is that we believe in the church. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. And I think that as we look at what it means to be the one holy, catholic, and apostolic church, we see, uh, we see some of the, the directions for that here in this very passage in Ephesians 4. The, the church is to be one. Before the church is called to unity, we're, we're, we realize that Jesus calls us one church. In John 17, when Jesus is, uh, is, is praying for his people, as he's praying for the church in the world before he heads to the cross, he prays, Father, may they be one as we are one. May they be one as we are one. Jesus created in his death one church. Any of the divisions that exist in the church are all a result at some level of human sin. They're all a result at some level of our inability to live together, as Paul calls us to here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That the church is called to be one because God Himself is one. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and in all. You know, there's a a Trinitarian pattern there. One body and one Spirit, one Lord, Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Just as Jesus prayed that we'd be one as He is one, that the church's unity speaks to the unity of God the Trinity. But just as the Trinity is united and yet diverse, that the church was called to be united together as one and yet uh, diverse at the very same time. There is only one church uh, in the world. Now, the church is fractured, isn't it? In light of the fact that there's only one church, there's many different kinds of churches in our world. And so it's easy for us sometimes to go, okay, well, if, if there's really just one church, then I can justify not committing myself to any particular church, right? I'm going to be a member of the one church. I'm going to go to church when it suits me. I'll, I, if I listen to a good podcast of a good preacher and I listen to some good music, uh, then I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a generalist and participate in the church. But the fact is that the way we're given to participate in the church is to commit to a church. That's, that's what we commemorated with, with membership just now. It's that to commit to the church as a concept is like saying that I love marriage and I'm, so com- I'm committed to marriage, I'm going to marry marriage. It's like, no, at some point you have to pick a person, right? You have to pick an actual man or woman and choose to stick with them through all of their warts and fights and personality differences and all that. That you flesh out your commitment to the institution through your commitment to an actual flesh and blood person. Or in this case, a, a flesh and blood group of people. That we participate in the one by committing to the local, by committing to the, the group. You know, the reality is that most of Paul's uh, admonitions here are, are not practical. They're not something that you can actually live out apart from membership in a community of people with whom you might differ, with whom you might reasonably disagree, uh, with whom you might be tempted to want to get away from at times, that if it wasn't going to be tempting to, to leave the church, he wouldn't have to call us to bear with one another in love, uh, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But he actually gives it to us uh, because he knows that a diverse and different people called together in one church, practicing that oneness in, in local bodies, is going to take an extraordinary amount of grace to give to one another. And he actually tells us that as we learn to find our identity less and less in our particularities, less and less in our culture, our skin color, our socioeconomic class, our success, as we find less of our identity in those things and more of of our identity in our relations to God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that we actually start to experience unity and fellowship with people that we never otherwise would, with people that left to ourselves we would probably never even want to hang out with, that we'll find ourselves having incredible amounts of things in common simply because we're both joined together in Christ to God himself. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story. He was, uh, he was a medical doctor, a brilliant man, prior to being converted to Christ, 
prior, and at his conversion, he felt called to become a preacher. Uh, and so he goes to seminary on top of his med school degree, and he becomes a pastor. This is, he was a Welshman, but he was a very sophisticated man. He would have been at home uh, in the highest uh, quarters of London professional life. And yet his first pastorate, he was sent to the Welsh countryside in this small rural church. Here he was, a sophisticated and cosmopolitan man, pastoring mostly sheep farmers, uh, most of, mostly people who had not advanced beyond a, uh, a grade school education. And here he was, this brilliant man called to be their pastor, and he was dreading it. He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be alone. My wife and I aren't going to have any friends. How are we going to make our life in this little rural place? And he said one of the things that happened is he found his heart resonating with the people. He found himself building friendships with people with whom he had nothing in common. He found himself uh, at first just going through the motions of being the pastor, but over time coming to really and deeply love this group of people. And he says in his journals that this was proof to him that he really was born again, that he really was regenerate. Because he says the old Martin never would have wanted uh, to know these, this group of people. The old me never would have wanted uh, to take the time to get to know them and to learn their story and to be knit together into one family. But the church is one, and he draws our hearts together in oneness. The church is called to be holy. The church uh, is called to be holy. That's the other at, one of the other attributes of the church. This has a couple of focuses to it. You know, Paul is going to tell us later on in Ephesians 5 um, that the church is holy because Jesus made it holy. Right? The church isn't holy because I'm holy. It's not holy because you're holy. It's not holy because we're righteous and good. It's holy because Jesus laid down his own life. He tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, washing her in the word to present, present her to himself holy, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. Right? That we're holy, we're righteous, we're good. Because of Jesus, because he washes us, because he gave his life on our behalf. We're holy because he makes us holy. But we're called to become increasingly holy. Right? So it's this, we're already holy, and we're called to holiness. That holiness here in this passage is expressed when he tells us, uh, Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Right? So what he's saying is that the church, what we do together as the church, is to pursue in each and every one of our lives an increasing resemblance to Jesus, the Holy One. And so this is, this is really, I think, foundational to shaping the culture and the ethos of a church, is that we're already holy, and we're called to increasing growth into Christ-likeness. Right? I think those two things serve as guardrails. They, prevent, they keep us from going, on the one hand, to kind of a cold legalism that believes uh, that through our own goodness, through our own hard work, we become holy. And it keeps us from a kind of complacent fatalistic, well, I guess I'm just always going to be a mess, right? It, it keeps us from legalism because, of course, you can't make yourself holy, right? If, if you could make yourself holy, then the death of Jesus was for nothing, right? If you could make yourself good, then, then Jesus died for nothing. 
You're left, in your, left to your sin, left to your own weakness. You could never become acceptable to God. And so all of these, anytime the church tells people, you know, if you want to be right with God, here's what you have to do. You have to keep these, these rules. You have to do these things and avoid these things. You have to avoid these behaviors, do these behaviors, and then God will love you. That misses the fundamental message of the gospel. The fundamental message of what Christ has done for us is that he's already made us holy. Is the only thing you have to do to become holy, spotless, perfect before God, without accusation, is to repent of your sin and to confess faith in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, God looks at you as though you are as perfect and as spotless as his son Jesus. Right? So, so it protects us from legalism because God calls sinners holy. But it protects us from complacency because, of course, Jesus doesn't want to just leave you there. Right? He doesn't just, he loves you too much to say, oh, you're already holy, so you know what? You just stay, you just stay addicted to whatever, whatever it is you want to do, what you want to do. Right? You want to stay lustful, stay lustful. You want to stay greedy, make as much money as you can, pay your employees as little as you can. You want to stay angry, sure, just keep going off on your wife every chance you get. He doesn't, no, of course not. Of course not. The one who calls us holy in Christ then calls us to be holy in Christ. And he not only does that, he gives us the resources to actually do it. At Pentecost, we remember that he's given us the Spirit, right, as our greatest resource to empower us to holiness, to empower us to new living. But he also gives us the church. He gives us a community and a culture by which we can help each other on towards uh, our growth in Christ. You know, the church, a church that really believes that, a church that really believes on the one hand you are absolutely accepted and loved, you are absolutely delighted in by the Father, you're absolutely holy, and you're, called, you're in a process of growth, is an incredible community to be a part of, to help you grow into who you're created to be and to help you flourish as a human being. Right? It'll be incredibly accepting, incredibly loving, and in recognizing that we're all somewhere in this process of growing to maturity, incredibly helpful in speaking truth. What Paul says here, speaking the truth and love to one another, building each other up so the body of Christ is built up. You know, um, this kind of community is the soil in which human beings grow to maturity a community where the truth is spoken in love. And it's incredibly rare to find yourself in one. Uh, I was just this week talking to a member of our church about some of the, the dysfunctional elements of their workplace. And they were saying, basically, if we could just get over our passive aggressiveness with each other, we could, we could do all right. right? If, we could, if people could just tell each other the truth, not avoid conflict, thinking that it's going to you know, be the end of the world, but do it with some kind of gentleness and respect for each other. Then our company could flourish and our, our employees would do better. Right? If our workplaces could do that, if we, could have, if we could speak real truth to each other, not avoid it, not avoid conflict, but to do it with love, we'd flourish. Right? Our families, right? most families drift towards one of two of those two spectrums. Right? We either love to think that we're speaking truth to each other, Right, and we're just, we have no problem with conflict. I'm going to tell you what I think about you right now. Or we're the kind of family that sweeps everything under the rug. We don't talk about anything ever. 
right? You know, we just, we just avoid because we think we're being loving. Why, well, you know, man, I, I love mom far too much to ever let her know how I feel about her or how it affects me when she t- treats me that way, right? We, we, we can either, we're either passive or we're aggressive, typically, or passive-aggressive. But a true community, uh, the community that really only the gospel equips us to have is a community that's high in truth and high in love, a community where we can really speak real truth, gospel truth, biblical truth, to each other, but we can do it with love and with tenderness, knowing that we're for each other. You know, most of the times I've ever actually grown in my life, it's been because someone in my life spoke the truth in love to me. It was somebody that I knew loved me who spoke something difficult for me to hear, and I couldn't just slough it off because, oh, well, this person's just a jerk. No, I knew, I knew they loved me. I knew they cared about me, and yet they risked speaking truth to me. It's one of the ways that Jesus gives us to build us up in holiness. So we're called to be one. We're called to be holy. We're called to be Catholic. Uh, That's the the third attribute of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The The Catholicity of the church simply means the universal nature of the church. It's similar to the church's oneness, is that we're one church throughout history and around the world, that we're one church. How do we we participate in that? You know, this this means that we're called to appreciate both the universal nature of the church, the oneness of the church, and its locality, uh, the way that it gets fleshed out here. Because the church is one, Paul was always referring to the church in a particular place, right? He writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. He writes to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. He writes uh, just everywhere that you see him referring to the church, it's that formula, the church in blank place. So if Paul were writing us a letter, he would be writing to the church in Jacksonville. And so to be a Catholic Christian, an uppercase C Catholic Christian, means that we start to identify, the way that we identify our faith is as a Christian, that's the number one defining thing about us, is that we're united to God in Christ, that we're part of that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but that we're the church in Jacksonville. So if somebody asks you, what kind of Christian are you? You might, should start with, well, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I believe in in the Bible. I believe in Jesus is who he said he is. Secondly, maybe even before you identify yourself as, as a Presbyterian Christian or a Baptist Christian or an Evangelical Christian or a Lutheran Christian or however else you might do it, is you might say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian in Jacksonville. I'm, I'm a part of that strange body of Christ planted in that weird city that's not quite Southern and not quite Floridian, right? I'm planted in that place with that group of people called to live out and to think about what it means to be the church in and for Jacksonville, for its brokenness, for its, uh, for its flourishing down the road. They were called to be both incredibly broad and universal and incredibly rooted in our local place and time. Because we're Catholic, you'll hear us say over and over again that our sacraments unite us to the whole church, right? When somebody's baptized into Christ, when they're baptized here, they're not just baptized as members of our church. They're baptized as members of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. When somebody, when you in a few minutes are invited to the Lord's table, You don't have to be a member of this church. You have to be a member of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One table, one baptism, one church around the world. So we're called to be Catholic. 
And then finally, we're called to be apostolic. Uh, what does it mean to be apostolic? You know, some, some branches of Christ's church believe that the, this is a tough word, the apostolicity, <laughs> to be apostolic means that we're in succession with the, with the apostles. So Peter laid his hands on this guy who laid his hands on this guy who laid his hands on this guy. Fast forward and somebody ordains your pastor. And so now you know that your church is apostolic. That's not what we think it means. What we believe that for the church to be apostolic means is that we're built on the foundation of the apostles, that we're built on the received word of God written by the apostles, written in this book. So it's, it's, it's the apostolic message and the apostolic mission that keeps us as a part of the church and, and, and as a true and apostolic church. That if we abandon the message or we abandon the mission, uh, that we're no longer uh, in the line of the apostles. Apostle means sent one. They're the ones who are sent with the message of Jesus into the world. You know, I love the way that Paul talks about that here. He says that what the church does is extends the victory of Jesus. Talks about Jesus as the victorious warrior. He ascended on high and he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So Jesus is the hero. He's the victor. And he gives gifts to men. He gives gifts to all of us. That even as one church, we bear independent and different gifts. He gave sure. Some, some are, are those who are recognized as leaders in the church. The apostles and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. But their work is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So my job as a pastor... Your elders' jobs as shepherds, even the, the biggest and brightest preachers you can imagine, their job isn't to simply communicate the good news. It's not simply to, to do their calling, but it's to help you. It's to help us as one body to each do the work of the ministry. Right? A healthy church, as, as Christ Church in town grows to health, it doesn't look like one preacher in a hundred and something people coming to listen to him preach. Right? It looks like a hundred and something preachers coming together to study the word, coming together to submit our lives to God, and then going out with a hundred voices to announce the good news with our own accents and our own ways, speaking the truth in love in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Each one of us living out what it means to be the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in urban Jacksonville today. Let's pray.